You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 6th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. It's 2000 in Beijing, 1400 in Kiev, midday here at Midori House in London and 6am in Mexico City. You're listening to Monocle Radio. The Briefing starts now. Hello and a warm welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up on today's programme, anger builds against the Israeli Prime Minister with no sign of the 200 hostages being freed by Hamas. We'll have the latest on a series of protests. Also ahead in the next 30 minutes... I'm pro-panda, let's be very clear. Pandas are wonderful... The Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, may be joking about pandas, but the business couldn't be more serious as he and the Chinese herald a reset of relations as he meets Xi Jinping in Beijing. Also ahead. Before all of you in this convention, today I say I am ready for my next assignment. Singapore's Deputy Prime Minister steps up to lead the ruling party ahead of the city-state's general election. We'll have more. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. Now, just hours after Hamas launched its brutal attack on Israel on the 7th of October, one of the country's most respected newspapers, Haaretz, ran the following headline. The disaster that befalls Israel is the clear responsibility of one person, Benjamin Netanyahu. Israelis have been quick to heap blame on the Prime Minister, who has taken pride in his ability to keep his country safe and secure. Well, a month since the Haaretz attack, protests are being held. On Saturday, hundreds of demonstrators gathered outside Mr Netanyahu's residence, chanting, Jail now. I'm joined by the journalist Hannah McCarthy, who's based in Jerusalem. A very good afternoon to you, Hannah. Good afternoon, Emma. Thanks for having me on. A pleasure. So just tell us what happened this weekend. Sure. So I was at those protests uh, outside Netanyahu's residence in Jerusalem. Uh, So there was about 2,000 people there. Uh, And again, the focus, I would say, was... uh, a kind of anti-Netanyahu sentiment. There was posters of him with blood on his face. Um, there was kind of a, a lot of anger from people towards him. Uh, there was also, you know, some posters calling for the return of the hostages and one um, relative of a, a hostage did speak. But the focus was very much kind of anti-Netanyahu. Um, I'd been at a protest kind of the weekend before in Tel Aviv where there was kind of the first nascent anti uh, war calls uh, or anti or pro ceasefire rally, um, which was kind of held alongside a rally for the hostages in Gaza, which has kind of been the most vocal um, kind of form of protest we've seen since the 7th of October, when people have kind of, you know, you know, gone into war mode. So the kind of protests we saw earlier in the year in Israel, where, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were on the streets, those stopped. Um, but again, what we're seeing is that kind of you know, that anti-Netanyahu sentiment that already existed before the 7th of October, resurging in a very kind of angry way. And and the reasons for these more recent protests, I mean, I mentioned the, the, the fact that there is a, a sense that he has abandoned or was unable to keep Israel secure as he promised that he would. But you also said that there's a an anti-war protest as well and a, and a pro, you know, and a, and a bring back the hostages protest. There is unhappiness at absolutely every level. Yes, and I would say I would say there is a big collective wound 
among Israeli society uh, since the 7th of October. You know, people very much say that, you know, they expect the Israeli government to keep them safe. And, you know, Netanyahu himself kind of, you know, had this kind of, you know, messaging where it's like, you know, you might not like me, but I'll keep you safe and I'll keep the economy going. And, you know, he's he's failed, really. And many people view what has happened on the 7th of October as, you know, a fatal a break in the social contract that is supposed to exist between the Israeli government and the people. You know, I, I, there was a psychological uh, first aid responder at the protest in Tel Aviv the weekend before. You know, she's there to kind of talk to people. And she said, you know, people are just coming up. You know, there's people who are displaced. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis have left their homes um, since the 7th of October. You know, huge numbers, you know, suffered uh, a loss of a family member uh, as or injury. Uh, and again, many people have family who are now serving, you know, in an active conflict. Um, so there's a huge amount of kind of uh, anger and, you know, fear. At the same time, you know, I think because of that level of chaos, it's going to be hard to get the level of people on the streets that you would need to have, you know, a kind of to, to call in a kind of widespread way for Netanyahu uh, to resign. And I think a lot of people don't, they might want him to go. Immediately, I think we, we saw polling where it was about a bit less than a third of Israelis want him to go now and around a half want him to go after the war. So those third, they might want him to go now. But again, getting people on the streets and getting that kind of public support to oust him, uh, we're not sure that we kind of see that yet. Um, Mr. Netanyahu has uh, repeatedly sort of appeared displaying every ounce of leadership that he can possibly muster publicly. I and mean, th- over the weekend, uh, he was asked about um, this increasing pressure from the likes of uh, Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, and many other color- countries around in the Arab world, at least, wanting to call for some sort of humanitarian ceasefire or pauses in, in the, in the oh. Israeli uh, operations in Gaza. This was what he had to say. I want you to know that there's one thing we don't do. There won't be a ceasefire without the return of our hostages. Take it completely out of the lexicon. We say it to our enemies and our friends, and we'll simply carry on until we win. And Hannah, there's plenty of words of determination there, and, and one gets the impression that this is something that, that, that Netanyahu will absolutely stick firm to. Has that reassured the public in any way? I, I don't think it really has reassured the public. And to be honest, it's exactly the opposite of what the relatives uh, of the hostages wanted to hear. Uh, you know, it's incredibly unlikely that Hamas would hand over the hostages without there being you know, a ceasefire agreed. Um, and I think, you know, they have offered that. And I think there's a real um, sense of frustration from the relatives of the hostages that that agreement has not been um, progressed. They don't feel there's a good faith effort from Netanyahu. Uh, and instead, he's kind of, you know, blaming everyone else but himself for the 7th of October. There is a there's a sense, we've discussed this before on Monocle Radio, the fact that there is a dire need for fresh leadership both within the Palestinians and now within Israel, that the Palestinian Authority has uh, been in control to a certain degree for a very, very long time, and that Benjamin Netanyahu has perhaps run his course, and this is the moment that will that will de- will indeed define his legacy, but will 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 end his his term in power. Where is the appetite, and where are the people that will actually bring this about in Israel, at least? 
well, as you say, Netanyahu has been around for a long time. This is his sixth time as prime minister of Israel. And I think there is a view within the international community uh, that, you know, when this war is over, we need to have new people, you know, leading Israel and leading uh, the Palestinians in Gaza. You know, there has to be uh, people who are kind of coming at this situation, you know, with a clean or relatively clean pair of hands uh, and fresh ideas because it's clear that Netanyahu has not, you know, pushed in any way the peace process uh, and he has kind of caused quite a device, uh, division within uh, the Israeli government. Um, again, it, it's hard. Again, Israel has had quite a sharp push to the right in recent uh, decades. So it's not that it's not that we are going to see uh, someone who is maybe completely suddenly a kind of leftist leader in Israel. I, I think what we are seeing is that there is a lot of um, support for the security establishment um, in Israel. And we're also seeing more support for Gantz, who joined the war cabinet after the 7th of October. Um, he's kind of viewed as a much more reliable pair of hands by Israel. So, you know, he's a possibility uh, uh, Lapid is also now a possibility. He's an opposition figure that has not gone into the war cabinet uh, with Netanyahu because he refused to on the basis uh, that some kind of extremist ministers such as Itamar Ben Gavir were still in the co- coalition and he just felt he couldn't serve alongside them. But I think it is important to note that uh, Anthony Blinken did meet with him during his visit uh, to Israel this week or uh, sorry, last week. Um, so I think that's, you know, important kind of signal of maybe where Israeli politics could go. Hannah McCarthy in Jerusalem. Thank you so much for joining us on the line. You're listening to The Briefing. We're live on Monocle Radio with me, Emma Nelson. The time here in London is just nudging 10 minutes past midday. A quick look now at the latest headlines. Here's Isabella Jewell. Thanks, Emma. Israeli forces and Hamas fighters are engaged in intense fighting in the Gaza Strip, with Israel claiming it has cut the Palestinian territory in two. Communications in the besieged enclave went down once again overnight. Meanwhile, US Secretary of State Antony Blinken has met with Turkey's foreign minister in Ankara as he continues his diplomatic tour of the Middle East. Former President Donald Trump is ahead of incumbent Joe Biden in five key US states, according to a new poll by the New York Times and Siena College. A year out from the next presidential election, Biden is trailing Trump by between 4 and 10 percentage points in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada and Pennsylvania. The leaders of Papua New Guinea, the Solomon Islands and Vanuatu will miss out on the Pacific Island Forum, a key annual summit which began in the Cook Islands on Monday. The new Prime Minister of New Zealand, Christopher Luxon, has also stayed at home to focus on coalition talks. Climate change and US-China rivalry are expected to dominate discussions at the week-long summit. Taylor Swift's latest release has enjoyed the biggest debut week of any album since 2015 and the most successful of the pop star's career. 1989 Taylor's version was a re-record of a 2014 album, part of a multi-year project to regain ownership of her musical catalogue. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Bella. Now it's uh, 2011 in Beijing, 7-11 in Washington, D.C. The Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, is in China, where he's held a meeting with the President Xi Jinping. Mr Albanese said the currently troubled relationship between the new nations has now embarked on the right path of improvement and that he was heartened to see that a healthy and stable China relationship will serve the common interests of both nations. Well, Neil Thomas is a fellow for Chinese politics at the Asia Society's Centre for China Analysis. He joins us down the line from Washington, D.C. Very good morning to you, Neil. 
Good morning. So there were signs everywhere that these two men were at least ready to turn the page. Uh, We have Anthony Albanese being welcomed into the the Great Hall of the People in Beijing, which is, is some gesture, isn't it? Yes, it's been seven years since uh, an Australian prime minister has visited China. And uh, Anthony Albanese is going there on a state visit. So he's receiving all the accoutrements of uh, diplomacy that China has to offer. So it certainly marks the the culmination of a, you know, kind of a year plus long process of restoring a sense of normality to Australia-China relations after a a bitter couple of years during the COVID period when China was putting a lot of trade restrictions on Australian exports. Just tell us how bad it got, because we had, this began, well, it it started to get very bad in the, uh, in the pandemic period, when there were Chinese blocks on Australian products and Australian blocks on Chinese products. And diplomatically, it, it has become a mess. Arguably, it was the uh, the lowest points in bilateral relations since the the Mao era and the the normalization of diplomatic ties between the two countries. So a real nadir in recent uh, recent decades, and it was the culmination really of of many years of kind of changing attitudes in Australia as well as you know changing policies in China under the leadership of Xi Jinping. Uh, and there was a foreign interference law in Australia that was banning Huawei the Chinese telecom giant from uh, Australia's national telecommunications network and uh, a real kind of, you know, amping up of rhetoric as well. Like we had the previous government talking about the the drums of war uh, in the the Pacific and the need to prepare for war and uh, not serious moves towards that direction, but the uh, tone of relations was uh, very kind of alarmist, quite sensationalist. And there are some real issues there, but I think the Albanese government has uh, approached those issues seriously. They're still pursuing um, AUKUS, getting nuclear submarines from the US and uh, with the UK. They're still uh, embracing the Quad uh, relationship with the US, Japan and India in the region. These are things, you know, that are aimed at trying to uh, deter and respond to China's rise. Uh, But at the same time, uh, their kind of more level-headed approach to diplomacy has enabled meetings to resume, like they have with the United States and China uh, as well, and has uh, helped uh, Australia to get rid of these trade restrictions that China has imposed. And I think we have to look at China's uh, growing economic troubles and the fact that their economic coercion didn't work and Albanese going to China was part of the diplomatic uh, dance, if you like, to give the Chinese system, to give Xi kind of uh, a, sa- a face-saving way to relax those restrictions without requiring Australia to do anything that China wants in terms of withdrawing from any of those security commitments. Indeed. I mean, who now holds the cards in this relationship? Now that they're talking about having a, I think Xi Jinping said that there's a healthy and stable stable relationship with Australia, which serves each country's interests. Uh, One always wonders whether one serves each country's interest, especially China's. Well, I think both Australia and China are acting very much uh, in their own interests as they see it. Uh, for China, uh, there's a desire to help their own economy by removing restrictions on things like Australian coal and barley that 
you know, we're actually contributing to rising costs in China itself. And that's actually kind of a fact of a lot of Chinese coercion is that it's costly for China. And uh, now that the economy is not going so well after COVID, uh, there was a, you know, a judgment made, I think, in Beijing that it just wasn't worth it anymore. And Australia, during those trade uh, restrictions, was being was you know, moving much more quicker and much deeper into its alliance with the United States. So I think that uh, it's, it'd be a bit of a stretch to say that Australia, you know, now holds the cards in relationship with China, which is obviously a, a much larger economy and a much kind of bigger power. But Australia does have some advantages. It has the world's you know, the best supply of iron ore, and China needs that to you know, keep building its its cities and expanding its urbanization. And it can't really get that from many other places. So Australia is in quite a lucky position, uh, being you know, kind of a, actually quite a resource led. Uh, export economy when it comes to China. So uh, China actually found it quite hard to put significant pressure on Australia. Neil Thomas, thank you for joining us down the line from Washington, D.C. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. The Foreign Desk is Monocle Radio's weekly world affairs programme. We tackle the biggest global news stories as well as those too often left untold. I've been out on the streets of Lagos. People are unable to withdraw their cash. Fights have broken out in banking halls. As well as the occasional retelling of events from days long past. The gates opened and in came this horse, absolutely huge, made of wood. People were asking, you know, what's it for? Is it some kind of icon? Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. There were a lot of diplomatic efforts by NATO and NATO allies. We really made big efforts to convince Russia not to invade. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time right here on Monocle Radio. Twelve eighteen here in London now has the conflict in Ukraine ground down to a so-called war of attrition. Ukraine's commander-in-chief, General Valery Zaluzhny, has warned that just like in the First World War, we have reached the level of technology that puts us into a stalemate against Russia. Well, the office of the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, was quick to counter this statement, warning that General Zaluzhny's comments will have been carefully read, noted down and conclusions drawn by the Russians. So what damage has been done by the general's comments, both to Ukraine's hopes of victory and to relations within the Ukrainian camp? Well, Natalia Gumyanyuk is a journalist based in Kyiv and uh, founder of the Public Interest Journalism Lab. A very good afternoon to you, Natalia. Good afternoon. So we, we have to be quite careful about our wording here, don't we? Because the translation has been uh, interpreted as a stalemate against Russia. Um, but as is always the case with languages, that might not be exactly the, the, the perfect way of describing the situation. I think that it's more about the issues, how sometimes things are taken out of context or, you know, taken to the headlines. Uh, the general's illusion made a point, which is a bit like a common sense in Ukraine and nothing to argue. And it's really not something to, you know, say that that would cause damage. Uh, that without air uh, superiority and technological superiority, there is this type of the war of attrition. I think the general's illusion was worrying about that for the last year. You know, that unless Ukraine receive enough 
of the weapon, in particular a particular type of weapon, you know, for the counteroffense, there the Russians would be able to dig in, uh, you know, which had happened, and they of course became more advanced with also using the drones, which they were not using for the first months of the war, and they learned a lot from the Ukrainians. So it's probably you know important how he wants to frame it because if you really read his essay, it's uh, it's about like how to win the war of attrition. What exactly equipment is necessary? What kind of the technological advance is needed? Because if there won't be this technological advance, there won't be beautiful victory, which is also, he says, that sometimes maybe also in the media or, for instance, you know, in the U.S. Congress, people expect from Ukraine the, you know, fast win because, you know, you needed that. Ukraine need that kind of fast win or, you know, some advance in order to get, like, support, financial support, military support, kind of an inspire allies. But unfortunately, Unfortunately, the battlefield doesn't work that way. You know, it's really not there just to inspire. There are real lives in danger. The people would die. So it's 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 definitely difficult at, at this current moment uh, to advance fast. It's a difficult moment as well because at, what he mentions also in his essay is the fact that um, normal countries, should we say, would realize once you've lost 150,000 soldiers, which is what has happened to Russia, that you would stop going to war. But Russia does not see things that way. Indeed. And what is interesting, he actually said, it was my mix- mistake to think, um, while for Ukraine, why also it's also very important that what, what he said, uh, when I was talking to the soldiers in the rehabilitation center who, you know, recently one soldier lost the limb uh, somewhere in, in, in the east uh, some months ago, he said, like, for us, 200 meters, you know, it might be, sorry to say, eight legs and a couple of arms. That's, you know, the price for the Ukrainians. So, for instance, they are demanding or asking for some supply for military demining because it's very hard to move. And there is a huge question, in particular for General Zaluzhny, you know, should he really push the advance if it costs that much? Therefore, exactly he's doing this argument because, you know, Ukrainians really are the ones who appreciate their soldiers and uh, they really like, the, there is this difficult choice to to what extent you can, uh, because we should also, you know, stress as well that all this time still Ukraine isn't really losing the territories if we don't speak about a couple of kilometers. More or less since the last year, Russia wasn't really able, you know, to advance as well if we don't speak about, you know, some kilometers. So Ukraine still, you know, stop this kind of mighty, mighty force with with Ukrainian soldiers' lives, first of all. Finally, briefly, if you don't mind, the, the effect of General Zaluzhny's comments. Um, I mean, the warning came from the office of the Ukrainian president saying that these comments will have been carefully read, noted down and conclusions drawn by the Russians. Regardless of the interpretation and the wider context of, of the lines, what he has said has arguably done nothing to make the internal workings of the Ukrainian authorities and the Ukrainian military um, as actually looking as if they are together and thinking as one. I don't think that there is major, dis, major, you know, uh, discrepancy. Uh, to be honest, it feels like that, you know. Of course, uh, there are different strategies, communication strategies to reach the, uh, you know, support. I think it's a bit like the good and bad policeman. You know, you need to say that the Ukraine has a chance, but you also should say what happened. You know, if if there won't be support, uh, because as I mentioned, quite a similar. Uh, so there were a lot of warnings about the, uh, you know, um, war of attrition if it happened. You know how to avoid it, and and still, you know, Ukraine doesn't feel it received enough. In particular, in case of the uh, air, uh, you know, if the, 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 I'm speaking about the planes 
to uh, to have the air superiority. So I rather would speak about that, like good and bad pol- policeman communication. Natalia Gumnyenyuk in Kiev, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Now, the Prime Minister of Singapore, Lee Xinglong, is to step down ahead of elections in 2025. Mr Lee, who's 71, will hand control of the ruling party, the PAP, to the Deputy Prime Minister, Lawrence Wong, as soon as the party's 70th anniversary next November. Well, Adam Hancock is a Singapore-based journalist. Very good afternoon to you, Adam. Hello, good afternoon. So, so before we find out about Lawrence Wong, let's just briefly examine Mr Lee's legacy. It is one which lasts several decades and the family connections are quite close, aren't they? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the name Lee is just synonymous, really, with Singapore politics. It was Lee Sin Long's father, Lee Kuan Yew, who many call the founder, really, of modern-day Singapore. He's the man who turned this small island into a huge success story. And really, Lee Sin Long has kind of carried on that legacy, really. It will be 20 years uh, next year that he will have been Singapore Prime Minister. He's done a lot to to continue to grow the country as a huge international hub and a a very attractive place to do business in, in his time in charge, particularly during the pandemic. A lot of Companies moved their kind of Asia headquarters to Singapore. He's brought a lot lot of big events into the country as well. The Formula One race every year here. There was that very famous summit between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. That happened in Singapore as well. Uh, He'll be remembered for guiding the country through the pandemic. And Singapore got a lot of praise for how they handled the pandemic. Uh, But he won't be without criticism as well. His his last election uh, in 2020, it was a pretty poor performance uh, by the standards of the PAP. Uh, He's had a very high profile uh, family feud with his brother. So he doesn't come without his criticism. But yeah, I think it's just really he'll be remembered as kind of carrying on that Lee Lee dynasty in Singapore. It is strange to think of Mr Lee in the past tense, but we do have to because he's now handed, not just yet, but in the next year, the, the leadership of the party to Lawrence Wong, who, I mean, you mentioned the COVID crisis response. It was... It, Singapore did have the reputation of having the world's one of lo- the world's lowest rates of illness and death during the early days of the pandemic, at least. And many have credited Lawrence Wong for this. Yes, absolutely. He he kind of came to prominence uh, during that time. You know, he's been a civil servant and a, a politician for I think it's around twenty five years. But he really became the face of the kind of COVID nineteen response. They very early on they put together a task force, and he was one of the co chairs of that COVID response uh, organisation. And, you know, he was the face of the press conferences, delivering often bad news about restrictions and, and more restrictions that were going to come into play. Uh, but really, he was there through, throughout and, and a face that Singaporeans grew to recognise. And I think it was that performance, you know, it was notable during COVID that Lee Sin Long took a bit of a back step and let the next generation of leaders take control of that situation and handle that crisis and Lawrence Wong really shone through. And I think that is why he was chosen to be the next uh, prime minister of the country, really. he He's the leader of what they call here the fourth generation leaders or the 4G leaders. Uh, and he was picked in 2022 to be the man who was going to kind of lead that group of leaders and effectively become the next prime minister. Everyone sort of knew when it was announced uh, that he was going to be the next man. So people have had time to get used to him. You know, he's he's the deputy prime minister as it stands. He's getting more and more public appearances. And as I said, he was kind of the face of the COVID response. So he is well known to Singaporeans now. 
Adam Hancock, thank you so much for joining us on the line down from Singapore. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Now, refugees come in many guises and staff at a zoo in Scotland are about to welcome their latest addition. Yampil the bear is Ukrainian and was found by Ukrainian troops in the ruin of an abandoned zoo in the town near Donetsk. A Russian shelling had destroyed his home and many of the other animals in the zoo. Uh, thankfully, Yampil has been rescued and he's on his way to Five Sisters Zoo in West Lothian, uh, from where Adam Walsh, head of education at the zoo, can join us. A very good afternoon to you, Adam. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Just explain to us, what condition was Yampil in when you found him? So, as you correctly mentioned, Yampil was um, originally found by it was uh, Ukrainian troops um, over in a zoo in the Donetsk region. Unfortunately, you know, he, he was in a zoo that had pretty much been decimated, destroyed. Most of the other animals um, were already dead when those Russian troops moved in. Uh, and, you know, they were very concerned for Yampel's welfare. They got him out of there as quickly as they could. They got him to Poland, and from there he was moved across to a rescue centre in Belgium. Some of our keepers went out to visit him for the first time last month, or sorry, in September, um, and they, you know, they were very pleased with what they saw. Now, obviously, he's been through a lot, um, there, there's potentially some trauma there. You know, he's seen a lot, he's witnessed a lot. He's, he's been through some pretty horrific um, things. Um, he was a little bit nervous. He was a little bit shy, but the keepers were quite overwhelmed with, uh, you know, just just how kind of good he seemed. And, and you know, he, he really kind of started to come out of his shell while they were over there visiting. Bringing Yampil to Scotland isn't going to be easy. I mean, how do you transport an enormous, sleepy, traumatised bear? So very carefully, obviously. Um, now, he's coming from Belgium. So that move from Belgium to us um, will be in two stages. I believe it will be the Nature Help Centre in Belgium that will organise um, for Yampel to get across to um, to the UK. And from the south of England up to Scotland, we'll work with a, a specialist animal transfer company um, that we've worked with before, so that we've partnered with before, um, and they'll make sure he gets up to us safely. He'll, he'll move up in a very, very big um, kind of uh, travel crate um, and he'll arrive at the zoo. Obviously, we'll make sure that when he arrives, things are nice and peaceful and he's introduced to his new home without too many people being around. Just tell us a little bit about what therapy or help you can give a bear that's been traumatised and seen the things that Yampil clearly saw. Yeah, so at Five Sisters, we're quite used to working with um, with bears that have been through a lot of very negative things in the past. So we've worked a lot with European brown bears in the past. The first thing that we really need to do is provide Yampo with the best possible habitat. So um, obviously looking at what, um, you know, as, as a sort of individual, what, what's Yampo's personality like? And then kind of cater to that personality, create a habitat that is specific for Yampo and also, um, you know, for Asiatic black bears as well, because obviously that is the species that Yampo belongs to. And they um, obviously, you know, come with, with the species needs as well. So that's the first, first things first, creating that perfect habitat and creating a, a kind of a good relationship between our keeping team and Yampel as an individual as well. You mentioned that you have had experience of dealing with bears that have been traumatised in some form. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, we've worked since 2012, Five Sisters Zoo 
has been involved in work with with bears um, and we have worked with six different European brown bears some of them have come from like ex-performing backgrounds circuses places like that um, one of them has come from a, a roadside restaurant and one of those bears who's still living at the zoo just now actually came from well she was found living in a big kind of shed um, kind of compound area near somebody's house that she was handed over um, to authorities and then taken to the Nature Help Centre in Belgium and from there they moved over to Scotland permanently. So we've done a lot of work with European brown bears but this is the first time we've done anything for an Asiatic black bear so it is very, very exciting for us at Five Sisters. Now my, my knowledge of um, black bears' habits is minimal which is obviously why we've got you on the radio but the, the, I am assuming now that Yampil is or is just about to go into hibernation. How does that alter your plans? He's going to be arriving with us fairly soon, this side of Christmas. We're going to house him temporarily in a, in a kind of small temporary area um, where he can go to sleep if he chooses. Obviously, things have been a little bit up in the air for Yampo recently. He's been moving around a lot, so we're not entirely sure if he's going to go into that torpor this winter or not, but we will give him the opportunity to do that. And come the start of next spring, so at the end of winter, start of spring next year, that's when we'll move him over into his permanent enclosure, which we are currently fundraising to, to try and build um, at the zoo. Adam Walsh, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Lillian Fawcett and Isabella Jewell. Our researcher is Harrison Warlock. Our studio manager is Mariella Bevan. The briefing's back tomorrow at the same time. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.